Hello and welcome to another AUA Office of Education uh, podcast. This is Vic Nitti, the Chair of Education for the American Neurological Association. And it's my great pleasure today to start this podcast on minimally invasive treatment for BPH efficacy versus quality of life. I'm extremely honored to have as my co-host, Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is professor of urology at the Icon School of Medicine um, at Mount Sinai in New York City. Uh, Dr. Kaplan and I have known each other for a long time, and I can tell you that he has been involved uh, in the treatment of lower urinary tract symptoms uh, associated with BPH and benign prostatic obstruction uh, for many years. He's made it a good part of his uh, life's work, both clinically and, uh, and uh, his, uh, his clinical research. So I think there's really no one better to talk about this topic as, uh, as Dr. Kaplan has a wealth of experience over the years and has seen the treatments for uh, LUTs uh, and BPH uh, grow over the years. So, uh, Steve, I'd like to uh, welcome you to this podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you, Vic, and uh, it's nice to be working together. We have shared a, a long career overlaps in terms of what we do, and uh, uh, certainly you've made a great imprint on lower urinary tract symptoms as well. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Well, thanks, Steve. Um, what I'd like to do, uh, sort of to start to start things, is you know, as urologists, we certainly all see men with lower urinary tract symptoms, either secondary to, associated with, or maybe not associated with BPH. But in today's day and age, what is your, if somebody comes to see you with lower urinary tract symptoms, where do you start? What's your, what's your basic workup? What questions do you ask? What tests may influence your initial treatment of a patient? So in general, we first thing is we listen and we kind of try to figure out what's bothering the patient uh, in terms of their urinary tract symptoms and what's bothering them the most because there are patients who can have a myriad of symptoms and not bothered by it and there are patients who may get up uh, once or twice a night who are miserable. So I think we try to focus on um, the both the quantity of their symptoms and the quality of their symptoms and the bothersomeness as well. And you know, we have our traditional uh, AUA symptom score, the IPS, which includes bother, uh, but we also ask other things such as uh, whether they're having leakage or whether they're having uh, pain, which we think is part of it as well. And the other thing, just in terms of when they walk into the door, I look at them because there are patients with certain body habitus who are going to be more prone to have certain types of symptoms. For example, obesity um, is associated with overactive bladder type of symptoms that obviously men have as well. So uh, you kind of listen and listen to their symptoms first and look at them. Any initial tests that you do on that first uh, encounter? Sure. So what we do is, um, in, in querying them, we want to find out whether or not there are certain dietary things that uh, could bother them. So as we know, caffeine, diet, um, uh, alcohol, stress is a major, major issue for patients 
uh, particularly uh, where you and I live in New York. Uh, people walk on the street and uh, they get a little stressed. Mm -hmm. So that can that can certainly have effects as well. Um, so once we kind of have that discussion, so we have all patients fill out a a uh, an IPSS. International Prostate Symptom School. We also have them before they come into the office do avoiding diary uh, because we think it's important to understand if a patient is urinating a lot, whether or not they're drinking a lot as well and, and what they're doing as well. Uh, we examine them um, and you know, we do a uh, kind of a uh, check whether or not they're uh, they're retaining any urine in terms of palpation. We also do a post-void residual on the patient. We examine the patient in terms of their prostate, not because uh, that is necessarily, you know, it's more to rule out things, uh, whether or not they have a nodule or things like that. And we get kind of a general idea about prostate size. Uh, I've, you know, you and I have been doing prostate exams for many years, uh, and I'm still not uh, good enough to tell whether a patient has a 30 or a 35 gram gland. But I think we can all tell whether a patient has a big, medium, or large gland. Um, so that's kind of in terms of the initial uh, concepts in terms of what we do. So in terms of objective testing, we tend to do a, uh, a Euroflow uh, examination of the patient as well as a, a post-void residual. We do it here with ultrasound because one of the things we have found, and maybe it's the nature of my own practice, is that many patients who have uh, a lot of symptoms tend to have a middle lobe uh, protrusion, and those patients tend to be almost a different category of how we uh, approach them. Okay. Now, um, you and I, and, and I think most of the people listening know that in most cases, the initial treatment of uh, LUTs, uh, secondary to or associated with BPH, is medical management. And we're not going to focus too much on medical management today, just to say that um, it, it is widely used. It is helpful to a number of patients, whether it is, uh, you know, alpha blockade or 5-alpha reductase inhibitors or um, e even some of the uh, PG-5 inhibitors now and uh, even anti-muscarinics or beta-3 agonists. But for the patient who has failed medical management, either it, it, they, they can't tolerate medications or medications simply aren't giving them enough of relief of their symptoms, Traditionally, a patient is offered the next line of treatments. Now, when you and I started, the next line of treatments, actually, we didn't even have medical therapy when we right. started, but uh, um, the next line of treatments was either uh, a transurethral resection of the prostate or an open prostatectomy. Now we have a plethora of other options that are available, and that's not to discount those procedures that we spoke about. But what we really wanted to get into today is with these other either surgical or minimally invasive treatments for BPH, how does one decide what to offer a patient or to help a patient make a decision as to what procedure might be best for him? So I guess, you know, I guess we can start, I don't know, we'll start with that general statement and then maybe we could go through some of the different options that patients have to them today. Yeah, so that's a, it's an evolving question and therefore an evolving answer. Uh, and part of it is we do have history. So uh, the surgical options were always the traditional options. And in the 
mid-90s and early part of this century, uh, minimally invasive therapies became very, very popular. And they varied from things like prostatic urethral stents to thermal therapy using microwave and uh, the, uh, the tuna device, which uses radio frequency heat ablation. And there was a lot of excitement initially. A lot of folks offered that to patients. And the long-term data with that was not satisfactory. And there were a lot of a host of other factors uh, that made those kind of procedures less, uh, less used and frankly, little used. Um, over the last four or five years, there's been kind of a renaissance, if you will, in minimally invasive BPH therapy. And there are two that are commonly now available, something called the Eurolift and Resume, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, and they have at least been able to be offered to patients. I think at the end of the day, when I have conversations with patients who fail medical therapy, um, and there are certain patients who are good candidates for Eurolift, some for better candidates for Resume, and we'll talk about that in a moment or two. Um, it depends on the goals of the patient. Because there are patients, uh, particularly if they want preservation of sexual function, particularly ejaculatory function, may want more of the minimally invasive therapies. And there are some patients who say, you know what, I want one procedure, one thing done, and I'm over it. And they tend to be the patients who opt for the surgical therapy. So there's no hard and fast rule. I think there are certain size limitations maybe with some of the minimally invasive therapies, but I think it's a conversation we should all have with our patients uh, in terms of offering therapy beyond medical therapy. So at least patients are informed about what the options are, and then we can go into each one in terms of what's appropriate for each category. So Steve, I have a question for you. This may, it, it may seem silly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it anyway. So for the, for the male patient who is clearly not interested in uh, in fathering children at this point in his life. Um, how important do you think antigrade ejaculation is? And do you think that this is something that we as urologists have made a big deal about? Or do you think it is a legitimate concern for a significant number of men who are beyond and not interested in, in fathering children? So that's a great question. And I think we've learned a lot over the last 10 years or so. So in the past, it was really a binary issues. Uh, do you have, it was a yes or no question. And when we did studies um, and looked at the data analysis, it was really whether the patient had ejaculatory dysfunction or not. It was really more of a a, quanti a qualitative. Then we began to develop metrics. And what we found was actually patients do get bothered by it. And you can measure it. You can actually measure the degree of bother and dissatisfaction they have with the various levels of ejaculation. And often it's not either or. Sometimes it's just less. But we have learned that patients actually, it bugs them. So I don't think we've made too much of this. I think that, in fact, probably it, it's worth the conversation. And for some patients who have been on medical therapy, for example, and they're on some alpha blockers that may result in ejaculatory dysfunction, who are used to it, they say, eh, I've had it. It doesn't really bug me. And for other patients, it really does. So I think, again, it's a conversation that needs to be had. I think it's probably been underestimated and underappreciated. Uh, on the out on the outlook for patients, particularly those who are sexually active, uh, but 
it's not always the final decision in terms of how patients view what they're going to do. And I think also it's, you know, there's a lot of, if you will, misinformation in the public, not by us, uh, in terms of what they think of sexual dysfunction. Because right away they think it's erections. And most of these procedures, even surgical procedures, really don't rarely result in erectile dysfunction. It's more of ejaculation issues. Right. And, and I, I guess really the, the procedures that we're going to speak about as far as quote unquote quality of life, it really is that ejaculatory preservation where they um, have their biggest benefit because, you know, things like incontinence. And when I say incontinence, I mean incontinence due to a sphincteric injury, not an overactive bladder uh, and such. I mean, I think with, with our surgical techniques, we've reached a point where, uh, as you said, um, erectile dysfunction and true uh, surgically caused incontinence are pretty low nowadays, certainly lower than they were uh, maybe 30 years ago when our techniques were a little bit less refined than they are today. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, I think, you know, when uh, particularly when these are studied, they always use the old data on TURs and you know, what happened 30 years ago, we weren't doing podcasts 30 years ago either. So uh, th things evolve, we get better at it. And those dire consequences, you really don't really see with benign prostate surgery. Okay, so we'll, let's go through some of the different therapies. And uh, we'll set this up as sort of a, a, a when and how the objective data durability and challenges with each of the the different therapies. So let's start with Urolift. Tell us a little bit about that. So Urolift is a very interesting technique. Um, and it was beginning to be studied uh, around 2004, 2005. And the person who actually was the original CEO of the company was looking for something actually for more for his dad in terms of how it should be treated. And he's a very bright engineer and thought, well, you know, if the idea is where these two lateral lobes are obstructing each other, then why don't we separate them? So using, if you will, clips or, or, or surgical staples uh, to sort of uh, paste up or tack up uh, the prostate anteriorly. And on the plus, on the plus side for your lift, it's probably, it's not even probably, it is the best studied minimally invasive procedure. I, I think that the, the, their, their group has spent a lot of time looking at the science and looking at the data to their credit. Um, and I think in selected patients, it's a very good option. So what, 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 what are those types of patients? So even if, if you have a significant middle lobe, you can't really use this procedure because it tacks up anteriorly. And if the money is a middle lobe, you're not going to really have much of an effect. In addition, as with, I think, the resume procedures we'll talk about in a moment or two, um, it's not really good for large prostates. So what's the definition of large? So most of the data has really been in 30 to 80 gram glands. And I think when you start getting above the 80 gram gland, you have to put in a lot of tax uh, to open up the anterior part of the prostate. It gets kind of challenging. So from our perspective, in a patient with lateral lobe hypertrophy, with prostates less than uh, 80 grams, it's a reasonable thing to offer. There is uh, five-year data which demonstrate that in patients who do respond, the response is durable. Do I think it's as good as a TUR? No. Do I think it's better than medical therapy in those who respond? Yes. Um, so I think from our perspective, and one of the caveats when we talk about 
minimally invasive therapies and frankly, surgical therapies is that we only look at the responders. And that's one of the challenges with these types of data sets. When we look at medical therapy, there's, we do what's called intent to treat analysis. So everybody who got into the study is evaluated. In these types of studies, the bar is much lower. It's in only those who respond. And I would suggest that probably a third of patients at five years with the minimally invasive procedures probably uh, don't continue to respond. They require another TURP or another therapy, which may include medical therapy or TURP. And I think those are the types of conversations we have with our patients. Ejaculatory function, for the most part, is preserved, and that is attractive to patients. And it can also be done in the office. Uh, you can do it either with a prostate block. Here at Mount Sinai, in our office, we can give conscious sedation, but you don't need to. You can do it like a prostate block we, we could do with a biopsy. So um, they have a recent approval for patients with some middle lobe elevation. But from my perspective, when I see middle lobe, I don't really think of Urolift. I think of in patients with lateral lobe hypertrophy. So, Steve, I got two quick questions regarding sure. Urolift. Uh, number one, if one did go on to need further therapy, now you have those little metal tacks in there, uh, is it a contraindication to use any sort of laser therapy with that metal in there? Not that I'm aware of. Um, and there have some patients we've done. I haven't done laser, but we've done bipolar vaporization, and it has not been an issue. One of the questions that has come up, though, uh, is the issues of MRIs. That was my and, second question. Oh, okay. You see, <laughs> we're dancing. Uh, we, you're like we're each other's straight men. It's great. Um, and it's interesting because certainly on the earlier MRIs, uh, there is a scatter effect of um, of the tack of the metal. And there has been some questions and some groups have been looking at it. With the later MRIs, this seems to be less of an issue. Uh, given the fact that we tend to put these tacks up where, in areas where prostate cancer is usually not uh, up on top, um, you know, people just have to be aware of it. And I think we're going to see more and more data on this, but it's something that people do have to be aware of, particularly if they want to treat a patient's urinating symptoms uh, with a Gleason 6 cancer, for example, who they may be following with watchful waiting and they just want to manage their avoiding symptoms. So it's something to keep in mind and part of the discussion. All right, let's move on to Resume. Tell us about that. So Resume is, although it's a different type of heat therapy, it's kind of a tuna-like procedure. It uses heat therapy, but instead of using radio frequency, it uses steam vapor. Um, and it, it's quicker than the tuna because basically you can do ablations. Each spot is about nine seconds or so, so it's much quicker. And you can certainly see the effect because it bubbles up and ablates right in front of you. So on the upside, um, the, the, uh, the benefit of it is that you can treat patients with middle lobe hypertrophy. The same caveats as, as I said before. You can't really treat patients with massive prostates. It's just not going to work. And so you have, if you have a patient with a 100-gram prostate, 120-gram prostate with a big middle lobe, and you think you're going to treat the middle lobe and get away with it, for the most part, you're not. So I think in patients with middle lobe, and in our practice, that's what we do. If they have middle lobe hypertrophy, I tend to favor the resume. And in, with lateral lobe hypertrophy, I tend to favor the urolifts. And the reason is the resume on the downside, they do have dysuria. 
And what we've seen in previous iterations of coagulation necrosis therapy, patients develop a lot of dysuria and sometimes retention. So we actually send home patients with a catheter of a, a couple of days after the resume. And their healing is a little bit slower than with the Urolift. And Urolift, basically, when they get it off the table, you have a pretty good handle uh, how they're going to do because there is no, there's very minimal edema and dis, and uh, and there's certainly no coagulation necrosis effects. With uh, with resume, it takes longer, so that's I think the challenge. And the, therefore, if you have the ability to do both of them, then being able to discern which patients to do it in is very very helpful. And that's what I tell patients for the first three or four weeks. Don't call me. Uh, you're gonna, you, you may be worse before you get better. And managing expectations is very, very important with both of these procedures. As with Urolift, for the most part, ejaculatory dysfunction is preserved. Now, they don't have the five-year data yet. They've had recent three-year data. And it's not dissimilar to what we have seen with the Eurolift. And I, and I think, I suspect that at five years, anywhere from a third to 40% of patients uh, will not have maintenance of their effect. And that's the, and I think that's, the informed consent, if you will, that you have to give patients. Okay, now the newest player is water ablation. So tell us a little bit about that. So uh, this is a not an office procedure. This is a done in the OR because you do require an anesthetic. And, and it's really, it's interesting how things outside of medicine are applied to medicine. And, and the folks who develop this are actually very, very smart. And uh, it, it's kind of fun talking to them on the engineering perspective. So what they basically do is do a power wash, if you will, of your prostate. And in industry, high pressure water uh, that is actually focused and almost in a laser-like way, no pun intended, cuts. So the same concept was used uh, to develop to ablate prostate tissue. And the initial work was done uh, by Peter Gilling, our friend in uh, New Zealand, and a large study that uh, Klaus uh, Rareborn presented at last year's AUA in a comparative study to TURP suggests that in the right patients, um, the effect seems to be TURP-like. And, and actually, having been an investigator in one of their studies, I buy that. I, I think actually it is kind of TURP-like. Um, and it's also the attractive nature of it is it's quote unquote robotic. It's not robotic like a uh, prostatectomy or nephrectomy using a robot, but essentially you pre-plan the treatment zone with an ultrasound and then a machine, the robot, actually performs the ablation and sets it up after you place the instrument inside. Um, the... The comparative data on ejaculation seems to be better than a TUR. I'm not so sure of that. And the reason is what we've learned when we started, Vic, we, we were taught that if you knock out the bladder neck uh, with either resection or laser, however you're going to do it, you don't preserve ejaculation. And, and that actually wasn't true. What we've learned is if you maintain the apical tissue, you can preserve ejaculation, even with a TUR. Um, so... When aquablation, they were clever enough, and I think that's why their ejaculation data is a little bit better than traditional TUR, is to kind of preserve uh, the distal tissue. And therefore, while they don't have ejaculation uh, rates like minimally invasive therapies, they seem to be a little bit better than surgery. On the downside, uh, there's bleeding, can be bleeding afterwards. And they've worked on, with the help of uh, various investigators, to compress 
the prostate, prostatic urethra using kind of a high level of traction after the, uh, after the procedure. But I think that's going to be one of the challenges is post-op bleeding because you're not coagulating anything. It's just kind of left out there. Uh, and it's venous, and you just have to compress it pretty well. Uh, the data that was initially presented was in prostates, I believe, less than 80 grams. And, and I, and from my perspective, I think that this will be a player in that group of, of, of prostates. In larger prostates where they're just finishing their clinical trial, you worry about when you have this big fossa, whether there'll be more bleeding. And I think the jury is actually out on that. Now, the other issue for us is, because both of us are in training programs, is when you teach a TUR, there's a certain skill set that is uh, it's required. And certainly, you're not as good uh, on your first one as you are on your 100th one or 500th one or 1,000th one. It, there's a skill set in resection. With this procedure, it almost takes it away because if you can do an ultrasound, then you don't really need a specific skill set to do this. So my concern is that people will forget how to do resections because this is kind of takes away the resection mode of it. Uh, but that's to be determined. And, you know, sometimes you move forward in the future. Uh, do I think it's better than a TUR? No. I don't think it's better than a TUR. Do I think it's a, an option that patients will be looking for? Um, yes, I, I think they will. What kind of data is available? So there is six-month data and that was presented and I think may have recently been accepted for publication in the Journal of Urology uh, or is certainly under review there. So that's the data that's out there. Uh, there is, as I said, a large prostate study uh, that uh, that's being uh, the data is being looked at and maybe will be presented later this year. I presume it will be maybe as a late breaking abstract. I'm not sure if they'll collate all the data. So there's not tons of data on it yet. Um, there's some preliminary data that Peter uh, Gilling had uh, published, but the the pivotal study is a six month. Are there patients who've been followed for a year? Yes, we just haven't seen that data yet. And it'll be interesting to see durability. I suspect it will be as durable at one year as a TUR. Uh, I think the, the issue will be the immediate bleeding. I think that will be the challenge that people have to deal with and will be, frankly, the pivot point whether or not people accept this. If the bleeding is acceptable post-op and it's easily manageable, I, I think that this will be a long-term player. Now, is this something that is now available to do and is it reimbursable? So the FDA did approve of the technology in late December. Uh, it's it's not co the coding is evolving, I would say. So um, I think probably for 2018, each case you'll probably have to deal with reimbursement. Um, I think eventually they hope to get an, a, a code above TURP because of the complicated, more complicated element of it, and they hope to get a codes. Uh, more consistent with and equivalent to cryotherapy, uh, but we'll see. And I think eventually it will probably be a reimbursement more than a TURP, but how much more, we don't know. So for this year right now, it's under that kind of cloud, not mm -hmm. because there's anything cloudy about it. It's just because it's new. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to work together with, uh, with practitioners in terms of getting reimbursement. I think they're committed to doing that. But I think 2018 will be one of these transition years. I think they'll have a much better idea in 2019. But the, the procedure and the technology is FDA approved. Okay. So our last uh, uh, therapies to talk about are lasers uh, and bipolar resection. And 
Um, <clears throat> maybe at least for part of this, we can focus on some of the things we can do with those two technologies that can potentially limit morbidity. So for example, you know, prostate incisions, median lobe only resections, those types of things, and then just lasers and bipolar in general. Right. So that's that's a great question. And um, interesting enough, we're, we're presenting our, our data at this year's AUA um, looking at middle lobe only TURs. Um, so in patients with large middle lobe, and we measure that there is a, a, a parameter called intravesical prostate protrusion, which is how much this middle lobe sticks into the bladder. And when it's more than a centimeter, we find that just resecting that piece uh, is generally results in data almost as good as a TUR in terms of the voiding and virtually eliminates uh, ejaculatory dysfunction. So in a sense, we get a bigger bang for the buck than we do with the minimally invasive therapies because we're physically removing that tissue and yet preserving ejaculation. And whether you do it with the bipolar or with the laser, I think it depends really who does it as opposed to the, the inherent technology. Um, so I think there are certainly things to decrease morbidity. Uh, there are different lasers out there and I, I, I've, I've become to strongly believe, and I think we've seen this with other aspects of urology, that it's less important how it's done and much more important than who's doing it. And uh, somebody's done a thousand or 2000 lasers, their data is, you know, Peter Gillen can do my holmium or Alex Day can do my green light and they'll do just as well as me doing a bipolar on them or on you. So it really depends more on the, the right indications to do the procedure and, and, who, and who's doing it in their experience. But getting to your original point, I believe middle lobe only TUR for the right patient uh, can be very, very valuable and I think help a lot in terms of reducing morbidity. Now, when we, when we were uh, doing, when we were, uh, uh, practicing this as residents, patients used to stay in the hospital for three or four days. Now most of our patients go home the same day. So we've evolved with coagulation, understanding that better uh, to reduce morbidity. And how about bladder neck or prostate incision for the patient who wants to preserve ejaculatory function, no major median lobe enlargement, right. relatively small prostate? Yeah, I think that that's a great idea. I, I, and it makes sense. And therefore, the data on transurethral incision was always good because for select patients who have an obvious elevated bladder neck, and you and I uh, both published work in the 90s showing that for patients with bladder neck obstruction, it's a beautiful procedure to do. Um, it, it takes minutes, literally, with a, you can do a, we, we do single incisions, but essentially ejaculation is preserved and they're very, very happy and it seems to be durable. So it always comes back to us with patient selection and the beauty of having all these types of therapies. So when we talk about precision medicine, we can actually do it because we can actually match the right therapy with the right type of patient. Every patient is a little bit different, their size, their configuration, their relative bother, whether they have more voiding symptoms or storage symptoms, what medical, medical therapy to give them. So we have a lot in the toolbox and being able to mix and match the right therapy for the right patient and manage their expectations, I think really helps improve our results and patient satisfaction. Steve, any sort of final thoughts just on all of these therapies in general, um, ensuring that the patient has the, obviously that they have the proper diagnosis before we even embark on any of these things. Just kind of want to get your closing 
thoughts to, to summarize everything? Sure. So it comes back to diagnosis. You know, if you have a patient who's drinking three Starbucks Frappuccinos a day, we can aquablate and TUR from today till tomorrow, the patient's still going to have urgency and frequency. So I, I think it's incumbent upon us to not box people into the same diagnosis. So I think for us, really working on making the right diagnosis and therefore predicating the right type of therapy. Reimbursement will be in terms of challenging the future, where we're going to do things, how we're going to do things. You know, right now, Resume and Eurolift reimburse pretty well, particularly Eurolift. But at some point, uh, it's going to reimburse less. And will we still be as committed to that technology? The answer is I don't know. And there's a host of therapies that we haven't even talked about. There's about six or seven that I'm aware of, of new therapies for BPH uh, that are different in terms of the way they work than anything we've discussed here that may also be players. So I think we have to be objective, uh, kind of caveat emptor, buyer beware, and just really be look at the data critically. That's where we, I think, can make value with the thought leaders in the space, as more importantly, the people who are going to practice this to be able to make really good subjective and objective evaluations. Well, Steve, that was really a great summary on the uh, therapies that we have available for treating BPH, especially those that uh, consider quality of life and particularly uh, ejaculatory function. So uh, I really want to uh, thank you uh, for taking the time to, uh, to talk to us today. Uh, I also want to thank the audience uh, for listening. As always, uh, if, you, uh, have, uh, if you seek any more information, you can uh, visit us at uh, university.auanet.org. Um, and I hope this has been a valuable uh, podcast for all. And again, I uh, thank you for listening.